Tennis Coach Steve here with FRA podcast number 14. Glad you could join us. We're going to continue our discussion on skill acquisition and coaching in tennis. And uh, we have a very special guest today. Um, I'm joined by uh, usual as my co-anchor and co-host, uh, B.O.B., and I believe we have Phil O'Callaghan on the line. Are you there, Phil? Uh, yeah, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. B.O.B., are you there? I'm here, yep. Hey, fantastic. Um, Phil, thanks so much for uh, joining us. You know, um, we would love to hear kind of more about you and, um, you know, and appreciate your time. Um, Bob and I are just super passionate about skill acquisition and motor skills when it comes to coaching tennis, so... Can you tell us a little bit about um, where where you are and and what you do? And um, thanks thanks again so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. I'm really happy to come on. So um, it's kind of nice to be talking to um, other tennis coaches because a lot of the time um, I have conversations online. It's with coaches from other sports. So um, I suppose um, like I'm from um, Ireland. My day job is as a P is a P teacher, but um, I coach tennis as well. Um, I have, like, I kind of started coaching when I was maybe 15 in summer camps, um, uh, like, as a helper or whatever. And that's kind of where, I suppose, that's kind of where I got into PE teaching because I really enjoyed that. Um, and I have, like, I coached a local uh, university team here. And I have kind of worked with some players that are, like have reached a fairly high standard, like nationally in Ireland, which probably wouldn't be that high a standard in the US. But um, so my like that's gonna a small introduction, I suppose. Hey, I I appreciated it. Um, everything you said, Bob and I always say that you're you're one of us. We feel like sometimes in the states. You know, we're a couple of the only people that kind of coach this way. And, um, you know, that's our kind of our big thing right now is just revisiting traditional tennis lessons and the traditional approach. And, you know, and perhaps there's a better way when it comes to skill acquisition and motor skills, particularly with kids and tennis. And, you know, and a lot of it for us is getting away from this stroke oriented lesson and really an obsession about swing and form. And maybe there's a better way. So, um B.O.B., if you want to give a quick intro for you, and then I'll kind of tell everybody what I do, just because Phil and I, we've never met. So go ahead, Bob. Uh, yeah, Phil, I'm a I'm a 60-year-old sort of retired tennis coach. Um, I've been doing this. I uh, first got into representative learning design, representative design of tennis lessons, we called it back then, 20 years ago. And so I've been sort of been a passion of mine for a long time, uh, but I've sort of gotten off the court in the last couple of years and spent a lot more time going down the same rabbit hole you've gone down. <laughs> I've heard you on some other podcasts and I really, I followed your Mr. Mr. Tennis coach blog a little bit and I'm following your skill acquisition for coaches newsletter. And, uh, just, uh, you're just doing such a great job. Just, I just highly commend what you're doing and thank you for, for all you've done getting the word out regarding these, uh, sort of other non mainstream ways of coaching. Thanks, Bob. That's really nice to hear. Yeah, Phil. And, uh, you know, for me, um, you know, Bob and I have known each other many years and uh, I work as the uh, coach or you might say the concessionaire for the city of Loveland, Colorado. So we're both, you know, here in northern Colorado, just north of Denver, um, not that far from Wyoming. And um, I have a, you know, decent sized academy uh, of kids. It's pretty for this area, pretty high skill level. 
Um, I run Adidas tennis camps at Colorado State University. And then I, like I say, I handle the parks and rec side of things for the city of Loveland. So some 10 and unders and adults. So I sort of have to be the jack of all trades, so to speak. And, and I get to work with a wide variety of players. So, um, um, yeah, originally from the Kansas city area, but been out in Colorado for a long time. So, um, it's, it's super fun for Bob and I, because you're our first ever guest and the first ever three-way call we've ever had on this little podcast that we call the FRA podcast. So, um, you know, we'll dive right in. We just, we thank you for joining us. Yeah, no problem. I actually, I did, I did spend two summers coaching in um, the U.S. Um, I was in Rhode Island for, in Newport, it's called by the, it's close enough to the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Um, so that was kind of an interesting experience as well. I enjoyed it. Oh, gotcha. Very cool. Yeah, that's, um, you know, that's our, that's our big thing. You know, I, Bob and I, just to get started here, you know, and jump right in, Bob and I both, you know, have a background of, of teaching the swing and the stroke. And we still do that some, there's some value in that and we'll get further into that. But we started to research, maybe there's a better way as far as skill acquisition and motor skills. And, you know, the, the last podcast that we did was roughly titled revisiting the traditional approaches to skill acquisition. And, uh, you know, just all about the fed ball right to a player barking orders about the swing. And so when I found you on Twitter and Bob sent me your way and we connected on Twitter, I just I loved everything that you, you put out there. And um, it kind of seems like there is a better way. Um, so that's what I've done recently with the kids that I see. I'll be out there later today is try to have more of a, a game based approach, a tactic first approach. And perhaps there's a better way than the stroke and form and swing obsession because you know after all the shot is the goal not the swing right um is that kind of the journey you're on as well yeah i suppose um like there's a few things like i suppose a lot of the way that like say tennis is coaches because there's a strong kind of like history of that being the way it's coached and when people go to lessons that's kind of what they expect to get so like I even remember when I was coaching in Rhode Island, um, I was just I was involved in like some say group coaching and stuff like that. And one of the like the head coach there, he, he's a really good friend of mine. He's a really nice guy, but he he just said to me, he's like, "One, you actually need to talk way more during your lessons and kind of give way more feedback." Just kind of like because naturally, what I used to do is like I wouldn't just say good shot every time, or I wouldn't say oh elbow higher prepare earlier or anything like that because I just didn't really see the value in it but because that's the way they expected to be coached the people that were there kind of expected it from me so um like I did do it because like the city environment I was in it wasn't like we weren't more none of the people that we were actually coaching really actually played tennis they just went to lessons um so like because that environment because they weren't they didn't really want to learn to play the game they were kind of just using it as more of a fitness thing and kind of felt and just wanted to feel like they were getting better. I didn't really mind doing it, but if I was actually trying to say develop tennis players or like people able to play the game, it's not really the approach that I take. Oh, Bob, we, I mean, we talk about that all the time that the practice lesson needs to reflect the competitive environment and that were created professional lesson players and professional drillers that know nothing about actual tennis. Huh? 
Well, yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, and I guess I'd interject there. I mean, I, I, I've seen a lot exactly what, what Philip's talking about there, where you have to do what the customer wants. If they are not interested in the transfer of the lesson to a competitive environment, well, that's okay. You know, uh, it's, it's their hobby. They're spending their time with us and that's fine. But the interest that most of the, that the three of us have is a, is a passion for getting people to get better at competitive tennis. And then, and that's where I think that the three of us have found that the traditional lesson where you're barking commands all the time, you're getting kids in lines, you're getting them to swing a certain way. The transfer is, it's, you know, it's poor. It's not zero, but it's not great. And so I guess, Phil, if you were, you were already sort of onto that maybe when you were here in Rhode Island, I mean, how long have you not taught the traditional way or did you ever never teach the traditional way? Um, yeah, I'd actually, to be honest, I, one of the things like that's kind of, I suppose, interesting from, like say when I was younger, I wouldn't have done too many tennis lessons. So like I was in a big family, um, there was say five of us playing tennis. Um, so like I did do some coaching when I was younger from about like say 10 or 11 years old. You there were 10 or 11 coaching? No, no, sorry, like getting, <laughs> getting got it. Yeah, getting my bad. So I didn't actually yep. have, I didn't get too much coaching. And then because I was playing loads of other sports, I didn't really have time to do. Um, I wasn't like, I was playing a lot and like, but I wasn't actually, say, going to lessons every week or anything like that. And um, so I didn't actually have too much exposure. Like I used to look up YouTube videos and stuff and like I used to be too focused on technique. But um one thing that was kind of um one thing i suppose is that then because i wasn't exposed too much to say the way like traditional coaching or whatever it's i didn't really like feel like i had to coach that way so then as i kind of got when i started to get into coaching and doing more tennis coaching myself it wasn't really um i didn't like fall back on the way i was coached because i hadn't had that much experience of being coached so um i had i suppose started to get interested in a lot of the skill acquisition stuff when i was in college myself which so i would have been 18 or 19 so i wouldn't have done too much coaching before that myself because like i said i didn't have a qualification or anything like that it was just kind of like being an assistant coach so there was another coach there and like i because i was a good player like they used to give me a lot more freedom than they would with other say assistant coaches and like they would give me groups of players to work with um but i didn't really coach in the traditional way i would say ever before but like then when i was say in that environment where people just wanted traditional coaching i would do it but it was not something that i would have gravitated towards right that's great so unlike me and steve you didn't ruin that many players <laughs> you've only helped them <laughs> that's great uh, yeah was... <laughs> we we you know we we sent people down some you know some technique rabbit holes back in the day that some of them never got out of so it's commendable that you never actually slipped down that with your with your students yourself that's great how would how would you describe just generally for the for the people listening how would you describe how you coach them compared to you know what they traditionally expect all right so like i think one of the like one of the important things is that like even though I wouldn't have like say a very big focus on technique I think there are some like important elements and like if we were getting into like skill acquisition terms like they would say there there are some say 
or if any of you are kind of familiar. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, can you hear? Yeah, if any of you are kind of like sort of familiar with the work of like Mark Kovacs and stuff like that, one of the things that he talks about nicely is kind of like style versus fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And there are some parts of like, say, a tennis swing that would be, that need to be there. But rather than kind of focusing on using and like drilling them and making sure they like just repeat them i kind of create conditions um sorry my phone is ringing there i, I kind of create conditions for them to like explore them so like for example one of the things like um i was working on recently with one of my one of my younger players was that i wanted them to step into the ball sideways so like kind of say if that they'd be stepping with their left foot into their forehand. And what I actually did was I got the student to take off their shoe because they were stepping with their right foot instead of their left one. So to kind of draw attention to it, I made them take off their right shoe. And then yeah. what they actually started to do was step with their left every time like I wanted them. So instead of like me being like, or just like, say, feeding the ball, I, st I just used like say a slower ball so I don't know if you have in the states you do have like the set of orange balls the red balls um yep yep we have so, yeah so like we I'd use things like that to slow it down and give them a chance to explore how to say step in um and then once they get comfortable at that then like say gradually increasing the complexity back towards the say the full version of the game yeah so they're you're you're encouraging them to step in, but not having them learn to step in because Philip says to step in. Yeah. You're having them step in, having them do tasks that they discover that that's that that's how they need to to play. Yeah. And and is that true of sort of other elements of the stroke too? Is that how you help people develop their yeah. better technique? Yeah, and I suppose um, like even things like um, I know like say when teaching serves and stuff like say chopper grips and stuff are important um and like you can say serve without a chopper grip but it's not really going to be as effective so that would maybe be something that i would kind of tell them to do but um again i'd kind of give them opportunities to explore different ways of using it um and try and like not to just um like sometimes there's nothing wrong with telling but the majority of the time i try to avoid it right yeah, I think that's wise. You know, just for anybody curious, you know, when we talk about the traditional tennis lesson, you know, and and Bob and I are one hundred percent sure that that almost everyone we know is still doing it this way. And you know, like you said earlier, we went down that road too. And um, is just that fed ball right to the player. You're barking orders about swing and just an absolute obsession about form, technique, and mechanics. And um, and just, you know, telling the kid where the elbow is or mentioning something about the swing. And, um, uh, you know, we were discussing the other day about how this idea that poor play is caused by poor technique can just about permanently ruin a player. Um, it's an unbelievable obsession that never ends because the best players in the world miss all the time. And, you know, and they all have different forms. So, you know, so for anybody listening that when we say that the traditional tennis lesson, that's what we mean is just that, you know, fed ball right to the kid barking orders about form um, and fill up everything you're saying is the exact opposite of that. We're not ignoring form. 
good form is preferred to poor form. It's just really hard to say what that is, isn't it? Yeah, and like good form is like say if we're talking about good form, good form is going to depend on the context. It's going to depend on the conditions. It's going to depend on a lot of things. So like rather than developing say repeatable players, we're looking to develop adaptable players within maybe certain boundaries. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right, because you know, just since I'm out in the field every day and, and coaching, and maybe you get this too, um, you know, one of the more common things that a parent might say is, you know, hey, are you going to teach the fundamentals? You know, my kid needs to learn the fundamentals of the stroke, you know, and their kid might be five. And, you know, and this, the parent is absolutely concerned with their kid learning the fundamentals of the stroke. But that's one thing that Coach Bob has taught me as far as the fundamentals. If you look up the definition of that word, it's essentially only that it's a striking sport involving two to four players. There's a net, there's how you keep score. There's the parameters with the lines, but as far as other fundamentals, that's a bit of a myth, isn't it? To, to say, I know the fundamentals of the game and I can, you know, tell your kid what to do. It's kind of a myth, right? Uh, yeah. So like there say certain things that we would, that would be preferable, but like, I don't really subscribe to the idea that they need to learn the fundamentals before they can play the game. So like there's loads of research in tennis and like tennis is actually some of the research, like some of the best skill acquisition research has actually been done in tennis. And it's kind of a shame that it hasn't reached a lot of coaches is like stuff, even like say scaling. So like um, five, six year olds can play a scaled version of tennis quite well. So like by scale, I mean, smaller court, bigger ball or slower and bigger balls, smaller rackets. Mm -hmm. And like you'll see the game looks quite similar to like an adult game and that's kind of the way it's designed and like there's a really cool video of um two six or seven year olds rallying i think overlaid with a professional rally and like it's actually kind of it's the same pace like say the time that the players have to hit the ball and stuff is the same with the scale so like my my thing is that like if players players don't need the fundamentals to play games if they are say scale to the right difficulty for the player they can the players can then play the games and learn say maybe some of the fundamentals through the game rather than learning it in say isolated tasks like ball feeding gotcha. yeah that, that that would get to sort of you know well what are the fundamentals and i think that when when you know like you had a little um I think in one of your latest skill acquisition newsletter, you talked about a, a soccer coach that talked about principles. And I think you mentioned a little bit yeah. about that, that I think gets to a little bit kind of like what I think about fundamentals. You know, you, your, your thing said the principles have to be constant. You know, they have to always be there. And I think that's true of fundamentals too. And so the fundamentals of tennis are the things like tracking a ball, intercepting a ball, interacting with your opponent, getting information from your opponent. Where do I need to hit the ball? Um, you know, all those things, the feel of the racket, the swing of the racket, the spacing of a stroke, depending on whatever stroke it is. Those those would be the fundamentals of the game. And particular grips, particular swings aren't fundamental. They matter a lot for what kind of shot you're trying to hit. But those would be another level up from fundamentals. I don't know what your thought on that would be. Philip. Yeah, I think that's a really I think that's a really nice way of looking at it. So, like, again, like, as you kind of said, the swing grips and stuff. They all depend on all the other stuff, like if you track the ball, if you did all that stuff. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with kind of what you described as the fundamentals there. 
Yeah. So when a, when a parent comes to a coach and says, I want my child to learn the fundamentals, I think rather than saying, no, no, we do it this way or that, we don't say that, say, I agree 100%. Now let's talk about what the fundamentals are yeah. and let's get to helping your child learn to play the game. And and if they learn to play the game, they're obviously going to master the fundamentals because those are fundamental to the game, right? They're always going to be there. So I think. Is that yeah. A, yeah. Go ahead. And like kind of what you're like all the things that you've just described as the fundamentals, they all they all need like say representative tasks to be learned, like to actually learn them. So like you can't learn to track the ball, you can't learn to do things from hand feeding, you need an opponent, you need the ball coming across the net, or you need a, like the ball coming towards you to learn those skills. So like doing things like basket feeding and stuff like that don't really transfer very well even though like they might be they might look good at the time yeah right. almost yeah guys almost well i was just gonna say almost every day you know when i'm coaching out there a a kid will miss a shot and look at me and say what did i do wrong and they almost always mean what did i do wrong with my swing and they oftentimes the form looked absolutely perfect to me and but they missed for another reason. The ball was hit hard or the ball had spin on it or they didn't intercept it in the proper spot. They didn't track it. They were jammed. How many times do we see kids miss where the ball goes right near the throat of the racket? If you have perfect form and you don't conquer those three spatial dimensions, if you're jammed up, your form won't matter. So, you know, I think that points to a couple of things. Kids are used to being ordered what to do on the swing and they're and they think that the swing was the issue and you know how many times do we see it just it wasn't the swing at all it was completely just the inability to track the ball and and center the ball in the strings which was unrelated to form in that instance <laughs> yeah so and, that's, I, and, I, and i think that you know when you're just tossing a ball right to someone and having them hit it you're you're really not helping them learn that 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 intercepting the ball you know, that you're really depriving them in that situation of a chance to learn a fundamental of tennis. Exactly. Yeah. So, Philip, um, so again, I mean, Bob and I know hardly anyone in this area except for just a friend of ours. It's a colleague that has kind of adopted this method of coaching. But uh, uh, that individual is the only one we know in Colorado doing it this way. Everyone else is still on the traditional tennis lesson that we know of. And I think across the states, I'm going to put it at 99% of coaches and teaching pros in tennis. It's got to be in somewhere in that ballpark of 99% are still doing the traditional lesson. How many people do you know in your area that are, are trying a different way and doing it this way? Um, again, only a handful of people. Um, like I know, like say I personally know two and or three, and then there's kind of like a few um, coaches that I've kind of like say those two and three have kind of linked me with other coaches that are maybe looking at it that way as well. But again, I would say somewhere between ninety five and ninety nine percent of coaches are still using the traditional way, and I I suppose there's two things that I kind of say to it. Like the first one is like. A lot of the time coaching the traditional way can be easier and so for a lot of coaches they use that because they if you're coaching that way you can maybe have more people on the court you could have more things like that so you might be getting more money which like especially like first if it's someone's full-time job and they're struggling to make ends meet then that might be 
a factor in why they'd use it. Um, as well, I'd say like a lot of the coach education programs um, aren't very effective at teaching coaches how to coach more effectively. So then it's kind of hard because like if what they're learning from the coach education courses isn't helping them, but like they think what, like how are they supposed to know that that's not the best way to coach? Um, like I don't say the two, two of you have had lots of experience of tennis coaching. So like it might've been through your experience that you kind of came towards this approach, but um, like for coaches starting out, they're kind of going to gravitate towards more traditional because one, a lot of the times they might've been coached that way. And two, that's the way they're, co- they're taught to coach in the co- co- coaching courses. So um, I suppose, I suppose that's kind of one of the reasons I started the newsletter and Twitter and stuff like that was to try maybe make some of the information more accessible for coaches because it's not like in fairness it's not the most it wasn't anyway the most accessible when I started out and like a lot of the good research and things were behind paywalls or in books and it like I've spent I spent hours and hours reading research papers and stuff like that and I know most people wouldn't really enjoy that. So, um, no, you're not going to get you're not going to get Steve to talk to talk about uncontrolled manifolds and attractors and flux yeah, yeah. So that's not happening. Um, so, what kind of what kind of response have you gotten now since you've been doing this for at least a few years? And you said you haven't. You know, you're. It's refreshing to talk to guys that are into tennis. You know, I mean, I know I've I've gone down a lot of these rabbit holes, and I, I run into volleyball and cricket and rugby and soccer and golf and different things but not a ton of tennis people have you have you found that you've gotten some feedback you know from tennis from tennis people at this no to be honest like there's hasn't been too many tennis i've reached out which is kind of interesting because like a lot of people would reach out on twitter and stuff but i think maybe two or three tennis coaches and like including yourselves have actually maybe messaged me and like i kind of quite open to like if anyone re- messages me, I kind of respond. So it is, I suppose, kind of, I don't know, is it a, I don't know why, but it doesn't really, a lot of tennis coaches don't really seem to be too interested in the approach, which is kind of not frustrating, but as well, it is a small bit frustrating, but it's kind of confusing as to why they wouldn't be. Yeah. And I, th- I think, you know, when you said the traditional way of coaching is easier there's just no question about that. I mean, think about what you just gave us the example of having a child take off the right shoe to learn to step in with the left foot. That takes a lot more creativity and thought than saying, step in with your left foot. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is not hard. It is not hard to tell somebody how to swing a tennis racket, how to step any of that stuff. That is, that's as easy as it gets. Now, is that a very effective way? Uh, it's not that effective. And I think an awful lot of people have sort of, I mean, the, the few people, I won't say not awful lot, the few people that I've heard, like on Stuart Armstrong's uh, podcast and others that, that have sort of come to these these methods, they've been dissatisfied with the what they've seen, with the results in the students. You know, they teach them proper form, they think is proper form, and the students sort of show proper form, but they don't seem to really get that much better at the game. And they start thinking, oh, there must be a, must be a different way, a better way. And there is, but it's a, but I think it is objectively much more difficult. You have to be much more creative to do the sort of things that you're doing to come up with ways to help people learn these things on their own instead of just saying, well, just turn sideways. Yeah, take, and it kind, of, I suppose it kind of, it takes a shift in your view as what coaching is as well, because 
like rather than being no being this faint in the knowledge and you impart it on the players you're kind of more of a guide and like you're willing to take to make mistakes like there's a, a lot of the times like the, when i set up a practice task it mightn't work perfectly the first time but like within two or three minutes it's going to look it's going to be good so it's kind of like being i suppose um a little bit vulnerable as a coach and kind of realizing that you're not always going to be correct whereas um i, I don't know if if it's just tennis coaches but it's not just tennis coaches but I don't know if tennis coaches are kind of more likely to not want to be vulnerable and kind of make it look like they know everything. Yeah, it could be. And, and you know, the, the sort of thing you need to accept in tennis practice to allow people to explore and make mistakes. I mean, you know, the, the typical view of, of mistakes is, well, they got to be corrected, right? Rather than saying, no, mistakes are how you learn. You learn the difference between hitting it into the bottom of the net and hitting it into the, over the far fence. The difference between those shots is how you learn to hit good shots. And the attitude yeah. of most tennis people is, oh, if you hit the ball just a little bit long, we need to correct that and hit it. You need to hit it shorter. And it's like, well, no, go ahead and hit it long. I mean, I think, I don't know, you listen to Rob Gray's podcast. He just said his most recent one on, on helping people learn by doing it the wrong way is yeah. maybe slightly more effective than helping people learn by doing it the right way. And that's, yeah, that, so takes, that takes a... courage. Yeah, and like there's a few kind of things you said that were kind of that kind of interested me there. Like the first one is like, yeah, like in my own, if I'm coaching and the player isn't making mistakes, I'm not happy. Like I actually right. want, I want them making mistakes, or else they're not, they're not really learning. They might be, they're just kind of performing maybe. And it's kind of like important to understand that like, for learning to happen, the players need to be like suitably challenged. So like we're not trying to get rid of mistakes. We actually might even want them to be making some mistakes like we don't want them missing every ball but like if they're if they're making every ball they're not really going to be challenged enough and as well like i suppose from my own experience like as a player um like i still play a bit but like when i was younger i remember like i used to i wanted to like really focus on tennis when i was around 16 or 17 and try kind of get a lot better and like the way i did it at the time because like that's the way i was kind of told or that's the kind of way i saw what most pros and stuff were doing was i went out i went drilling cross courts i went drilling down the line um i just was just trying to build my consistency and yeah kind of i did get quite good at doing the cross courts and stuff but i remember going to a match and losing and being like i worked so hard for the last few months and but I yeah. wasn't consistent in a game, but I was consistent in the drills. Philip, yeah, let me jump in. Yeah, Bob, that's interesting, isn't it? You and I have talked about that and not only like just rallying cross court, but maybe setting a cone out as a target and how that doesn't really become representative of actual tennis. It's tennis points are unbelievably short at all levels and it's just chaos and stopping and starting and changing direction and trying to get a feel in practice of a cross court rally it just doesn't simulate nor is it representative of an actual competitive tennis point, huh? Yeah, yeah definitely. So like what I'd say, like one of like one thing that I guess I guess or I've kinda of heard a bit is that like, oh um say but Feder or Nadal do cross courts in practice and then like my response to that would be, well like yeah, would they also play over 
probably they on tour they play over a hundred matches a year. They play sets in practice every day when they're not playing matches. So like, may it's not it's not the worst thing for them to maybe do cross courts every now and then when they're already playing so many matches. But when junior players who like I remember when I was working with some junior players at one stage, I asked like I just asked them all when was the last time they played a set, and it was over a month ago which was the last tournament because like they just finished um there hadn't been a tournament in a while and they actually hadn't played a single set in over a month so if those but they had done loads of cross courts and building consistency and all that stuff in practice so like if those players aren't getting exposure to matches and stuff like that then it's kind of it has a bigger effect on them if we just spend all our practice time doing things to build consistency gotcha yeah, yeah and I think that I think that idea of, of the practice set and practice match might be one of the biggest differences in the game from, you know, I'm like I said, I'm 60 years old. So I started playing in the tennis boom in the 70s. And, you know, we played a lot more just sets and matches with our friends. And you want a representative design of practice. Well, that's awfully good, isn't it? Because they're playing sets and matches against your friends. And, you know, you wanted to win. You, you, know, you hate losing to your buddies, but you were allowed to, you know, it was a great place to explore lots of different ways to play. I would try two-handed backhands or one-handed backhands, slice backhand, topspin backhand, serving and volleying, drop shot lob, all kinds of things in competition, practice competition with my buddies. So we would be serving not to cones or to tennis ball cans, but to an opponent. And you would see how effective is my serve not based on, well, did it land in a certain place on the court? But what was the response from my opponent? And so I think that's the big thing that's missing. A lot of kids, they do play a fair, I mean, around here anyway, a lot of them play a fair number of tournament matches. But the tournament match is the performance, really. That's not, that's not so much the place to explore and experiment and learn, pick up new tools for your toolkit. That's the place to use the tools that you already own, right? But the place to experiment and get better is the practice set the practice matches and things now, i don't say i don't see kids doing that you know they they, they do drills and they, they try to hit better shots or maybe work on their form but they're not really out there experimenting in competition with their friends so i i, I agree with that Phil. i think that's a i think that's a big thing that, that kids most kids are missing and you know like steve you're doing some of that with some of the utr matches that aren't particularly high stress you can experiment in those i think that's good that's right. Yeah, I don't know, Philip, how much UTR is out there where you are, but every single Friday night, including this week, you know, I offer two matches for kids or adults that count for verified UTR ratings. So, you know, it's all about level-based play and just getting quality matches in. So we encourage all of our players to compete outside of my groups and private lessons all the time. I emphasize it's just absolutely critical. You're, that's where you're going to actually learn more of the fundamentals is just is competing. So is UTR, you have a, quite a few UTR events out there? Um, not really. It hasn't been something that, like, they, it came in maybe two years ago. It's not some, they keep changing what, what ratings and stuff they're using. And it's kind of weird. It's not really making much sense what they're doing at the moment in Ireland. But, um, like because we have national rankings and UTRs and WTNs and like no one really knows what's going on with them um so they could have done a better job maybe implementing them it's just tennis Ireland is a bit all over the place as an organization at times so and there's no like kind of consistent rating that they're using which 
isn't really helping at the moment. Yeah, that does sound confusing. Well, it's confusing here too because well, I don't even know. Like the last tournament, I I I played a tournament over the weekend and they used WTN numbers, and I don't even know what a good WTN number is. Yeah, I'm yeah, not sure they do either. Yeah, <laughs> it's not working out too well from what I've heard. Right, right. So, so uh, uh, yeah, let me can I ask you another question, Phil? Yeah, um, yeah. This is straight from Bob, so. You know, can and this again, this is where some of the terms go over my head. I got to look them up, you know. Um, but discuss the difference between skill and action capacity and, and the role of biomechanics in developing action capacities. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, so um, I'll start with kind of skill. So, like, I suppose skill is um, like a nice kind of definition I heard of skill recently was like, just skill is the ability to like apply say a technique in context or like to solve a problem or an emerging problem. So like the way, the way you kind of like players are skillful if they're able to kind of adapt and solve different problems as they come up the way, like say Roger Federer, probably the most skilled tennis player of all time, maybe, or my generate of, or who I've seen play anyway, like he, the way he hits a forehand, like it's going to change a bit every time. Like he won't be able to hit it the exact same every time. Um, so like depending on maybe the surface, the time of day, the temperature, altitude, the position he is on the court, the score, all of that, those will like influence his ability to hit the ball or influence what he's going to do. So like skill is how he kind of solves the problem. And then if we're looking at say like action capacity, there's a, there's a lot of different words out there for like the same thing. So like action capacity, there's action capability, there's action. Um, there's another one I can't remember what it is, but um, like what I'd say an action capacity is, it's not something I would have used much before. It's just um, I suppose it's like what feeds into action capacity. Like there's a lot of different things would feed into action capacity, just like you kind of said, like biomechanics, strength, flexibility. So like it's what the player is actually able to do, I suppose, or like what his kind of, what his body would allow him to do or what his like different, like how he, like his, um, I suppose his, the, the the number of different ways he could solve the problem based on his maybe strength, height, flexibility, things like that. So like, say for example, someone like um, John Isner would have a lot different action capacities to Diego Schwartzman, who's five foot seven or five foot eight. So like he'll be, he'll be able to maybe hit the hit the ball when it's up higher. He won't have to move back as much maybe. Whereas Diego Schwartzman will have different action capabilities or capacities as well because he'll be maybe faster, he'll be able to recover quicker quicker and things like that. So I think that's kind of what action capacities or action capabilities kind of kind of leads itself into if that answers your question. And you might, you know, you might say, like, you know, Steve's wondering, you know, how can I use these hand feeds? Everybody thinks, you know, standing next to the player and tossing a ball to them, that's useful. And and I think from a skill standpoint, it's not going to be very useful. It might not useless, but not very useful because it's not very representative of the tasks that you encounter playing tennis. But it may be useful in developing skill capacity, you know, whereas it develop your ability to generate more and more racket speed. You could you could do that. 
you know, you can help somebody get a faster and faster racket. Now, whether they're actually going to use that or want to use that racket speed, that's going to, that's going to depend on the task and their skill level. You know, we, we see plenty of kids who have a lot of racket speed, but not very much skill and they're not that good at tennis yet. But, you know, that might be a way that, you know, you can probably in isolation help people develop their capacity, their action capacity to get a ball, racket moving faster, to get their own bodies moving faster, and then and then help them use those capacities in the skill in different settings. Does that make sense, Philip? Yeah. So what I kind of say there is like what is really important is to like understand like what you said there, like if you are working using an isolated task to work on developing an action capacity that would be okay and like it's not it's like it is a way that you can do it but you need to understand like the why you're doing it and stuff like that so but if you're using an isolated task to develop skill then you're not using it in in a in the most effective way as possible so like understanding why you're doing something as a coach is really really important um so like just seeing something on youtube um this pro player was doing this with his coach and then just doing it with your player isn't really the best way to do it you need to actually understand why and like the purpose behind everything you're doing on the court yeah and i think that sometimes we fall into the trap that the that the action capacity is the skill you know this yeah. being able to swing a racket fast is the skill or you know one of the other questions i had you know as you you've i think expounded upon the difference between skill and technique you know i think that there there's a difference there yeah massive yeah so like technique doesn't have a kind of context in it it's just like if we look at what skill what technique is like say what it's just the ability to like say it's the biomechanics and stuff behind it but if we're looking at skill it's how we apply that in a how we apply those techniques to solve the um, like changing task problems and adapt to and use them effectively to solve what we want to do it so like the way an effective like a skillful volleyer is going to volley in a lot of different ways. They're not just going to volley in one ideal way and just reproduce it on the court. To like the changes to the tasks are going to require them to adapt to skillfully volley. And the volley might be the simplest of all the techniques. Yeah. Tennis shots, you know, and think, yeah. and think of how many different ways people, you know, what, how many different techniques people use to hit volleys. And, you know, and, and sort of my point there is that the, that the technique isn't the skill. The skill is, you know, getting the ball to go to certain places in the court, right? Or ultimately, yeah. skills to win points and win matches. And so, you know, we I think we fall into the trap of of, of saying that the that learning how to swing is a skill, but the swing isn't the skill. The shot is the skill. The yeah. winning points is the skill. Yeah, like it doesn't really matter how good you look if you're not really winning the points. <laughs> right. The yeah, and if and frankly, if you can hit the shots. You're talking about it. You know, you're trying to hit a 70 mile an hour topspin forehand. Doesn't matter how you're doing it, really. If you're doing it, there aren't that many ways to successfully execute a 70 yeah, mile an hour like topspin one, forehand. The one thing I would say is, like, if my only time that I'd have an issue with someone performing in a, in a certain way is if they're going to injure themselves. Right. So, like, you know, if if they're serving in a way that's going to maybe that I know might lead to shoulder issues even if they are serving in a skillful way it might be something that i'd look at maybe working on 
Right. But that's, that's hard for guys like, you know, guys like me, you know, I'm not a biomechanist. I'm not a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like a lot of the, a lot of the, like say, that's not really something that you've ever, that you learn on a, I don't know, USTA course or Trans-Ireland no. course. Um, like it's way more advanced than that. So yeah. Then, and, and I mean, and for instance, you know, Andy Roddick with his little abbreviated service motion. Yeah. I mean, you're maybe a little too young to remember when Andy came on the scene. No, he but, was my favorite player when I was younger. Yeah, but every everybody said, "Oh, you know that abbreviated motion. It's gonna be hard on his shoulder." Did you do you remember Andy Roddick ever having shoulder problems? He had a long career. I don't remember that. No, no, and I you know I even go back farther. I remember you know I tell a story about playing against Jimmy Arias when I was young and he was twelve years old or something, and and he had these semi western strokes. He had you know wooden racket back in the day, and he was crushing semi western tops and forehands and backhands and everybody said well that's impressive what that little kid's doing but he's gonna throw his arm out that's what everybody always said he's gonna throw his arm out jimmy got the five in a world he didn't <laughs> he didn't throw his arm out so if somebody would have stopped him and said no you're gonna hurt your shoulder there they just yeah. deprived the world of the number five ranked player at some point <laughs> so so i mean I, I absolutely agree with you there that we don't want people swinging in ways that hurt themselves but it's kind of hard for us tennis coaches to make that call it's not easy yeah, um, like I suppose, say, like if we were working with, uh, as players get better, it's going to get harder. But like if we're, say, working with maybe less advanced players and we see them using wrong grips on a serve, then that might be something that we might work on maybe. What would, um, be, a, what would be a wrong grip on a serve that would be causing an injury, do you think? Maybe some, like if they were using... Um, say if they were using a semi-western grip to serve or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, would, that would that cause injury or does that just prohibit them from hitting a lot of effective serves that would sort of be my take on that i would i think it would eventually lead to injuries hmm. because they're not going to be like because it's going to stop them doing a lot of the good things on the serve like say like say for example with if look working on a serve so this is something that like serve is something that I kind of that I have kind of a bit more knowledge on than other strokes maybe but mm -hmm. say like for example like one of the things that's really important in a serve is that they're loading into their back hip and if they're loading into their back hip then a lot of the other stuff is going to fall into place so it's not that like like say for example if someone isn't um if you videoed someone's serve and you slowed it down and you were watching it from the back and maybe you saw that they weren't pronating very effectively um a lot of that can actually come from them not loading their hips properly mm -hmm. and if you look at it and you see like if you see um like a common thing for the best servers is that they have a effective load in their back hip and that actually for that has a knock-on effect that they'll pronate better and if you have someone that loads their hip well and has, a, say, a chopper grip, what's a hold on? What's a, you've heard that use that term before. What's a, what's a chopper grip? What is it? Oh, sorry, continental. Okay. Sorry. Oh, continental. Okay. Sorry, sorry. We call it chopper over Great. here. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Hammer, hammer grip, continental. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. If they have a continent, like if they have an effective back hip load and a continental grip, they're gonna end up pronating quite well. Right. Yeah. So I would just say regarding a semi-Western grip, you're probably not going to see anybody 
that's even getting to the point where they're trying to load their back hip if they're using yeah. a semi-western grip yeah. on a serve. That's pretty yeah. far afield. So, so, but with the loading of the back hip specifically, then how is it that you help people learn to do that better? Oh yeah, yeah. So, um, there a lot of these ideas actually came from like seeing it in baseball. So, like, um, one of the things that I did um, is say that like you know the way it's kind of like i kind of like nearly made like a little baseball mound so it was i would actually say like um i or if you can use the side of a hill if there's one near the court is that like if you if you're say standing on a down slope and you try serve if you're loading your front hip you're going to fall down the hill whereas if you load your back hip you'll be you'll still be able to serve so again it's actually making the mistake worse like we kind of yeah. talked about earlier yep excellent um and like i've seen people do it in baseball so then i kind of try to do it in tennis because loading the back hip in baseball was something that was important as well and I, like it looks different but um it's something that i found worked really well and um, so you maybe build a little like inclined plane or something like that out of yeah um, it was actually during um it was during say locked it like the covid lockdowns or whatever i first did it and i actually just had like a kind of plank of wood that i was able to yeah. stand on mm-hmm. um a block on the front and um like a tackle bag for like you know say like a tackle bag where i just had one at home like say something you'd use in american football like you know the things people would hold and they tackle right um at, and like that was really soft at the back and what it did was that like when i if you if you loaded your if you loaded your back hip you would kind of step into the softer part or you'd step into the board and it would kind of sink into the softer part a bit. So you'd actually get your feedback from it that you're actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that like, I actually haven't been able to use it since, um, but it was probably the best my serve ever was. Why haven't you been able to use it since? Because I, um, I never actually, I don't have the tackle bag anymore and I need to find something that I can use instead. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. See, again, there's an example of a very clever way to help somebody do something that, you know, a, t- a traditional coach would just say, well, you need to load your back hip more, <laughs> you know, yeah. and maybe some high tech coach might have a force plate or something like that. But yeah. I think I can count on zero hands the number of coaches that bring force plates out to a tennis court. Um, no. Nobody's doing that. They're doing that in golf, you know, but I have not seen that really. I mean, I had a friend that was doing some of that 3d motion capture stuff you know 20 years ago but he's you know he's a high-tech biomechanics coach but i don't think he's doing a lot of that kind of measurement stuff anymore but so no. you saying you know you can use an inclined plane with a, with a with a tackle bag and that's very clever that's very cool it's not easy to come up with those ways of helping people learn those those concepts it's very cool phil what's your Real quick, let me jump in. What's your take on just the video analysis? You know, so many people think that, you know, um, obviously a lot, we're almost all visual learners, but just using that cell phone or something better or software as a video tool, you know, and or parlaying your strokes next to Alcaraz and trying to have your forehand look like Alcaraz. Um, what's your take on just that video analysis if you're going down that technical road? Because I know, Bob, you told me once, if you if you really want to go down that rabbit hole of, biomechanics of tennis you, you almost need something fancier some zeiss technology from germany and you know a super expensive um piece of apparatus and equipment if you want to go down that road but phil kind of what's your take how often would you use you know a video analysis if you're going down more of a technical path 
Um, yeah, so I suppose there's actually, there's a good bit to that question. So, like, the first thing is that, like, most, as kind of Bob had alluded to earlier, like, doing, like, technical analysis like that is, it should be outside the scope of, like, 99% of tennis coaches, and it's not something they should really be doing because they're not actually, they don't actually know how to use it effectively. But, like, how I'd, how I would use it is... Um, like the only time I would I'd use it is really like the majority of the time sorry I'd use it would be with the serve because it's maybe a skill or that you'd have maybe more control over because like say when you're serving even though it's a dynamic task it's going to be like less dynamic than using than say hitting a forehand um, when if I was using it for to analyze say someone's forehand um, like Again, there are maybe certain elements that might be important on a forehand. And once they're within those elements, how they're kind of, and they're achieving their goal, then like that's okay. So, like, say if you're comparing, I don't see the point of comparing, say, my forehand to Alcaraz's forehand because, because his body and everything is going to be so much different yeah. to mine. Um, so, once my forehand was say within the barriers or within the kind of like i suppose um, parameters of like what a good forehand looks like like there is no perfect forehand that everyone needs to kind of um subscribe to but there are maybe certain elements that maybe would be common amongst like nearly all pro players and if you're kind of hitting those within reason, then I'd kind of be happy with it, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be spending too much time going through details because, like, I remember, like before, I kind of would have maybe been more, say, subscribed to ecological dynamics. I remember like watching Feder and Sampras serve, and trying to like replicate the way they were serving. So like I'd try to get the racket down like they did and serve like them. But I, I used to be able to do it kind of in practice but the second I went to match it looked nothing like it again and like there was no point in me spending hours trying to drop my racket down low like they were because that's not what makes a good serve like their serve isn't good because they're dropping their racket down their serve is good because they're getting their back hip loaded um Sampras had a really flexible shoulder and could reach or like had a really like flexible track or thoracic or thoracic region or whatever so he was able to get a lot more power so like there's things like that um, is yep. an example of like where looking at video and stuff and trying to maybe copy someone isn't actually going to help you and you're going to be wasting a lot of your practice time. Yeah, I figured that would be your answer. I mean, that's been the whole point of the, all the discussions that Bob and I have had over the years is not that technical obsession. So um, this is super fun. I feel like I'm talking to two guys that have multiple PhDs from Harvard and Yale. And then you have this coach Steve here with this university of Kansas degree, <laughs> but I think it's awesome. Can I, let me back up and just for the listeners and just go back to the Colorado lesson really quick. And Phil, tell me if, you know, if we're on the right track here. So if you look at it, it's kind of, as we I wrap up, I know we're coming close to an hour here, but if you look at the typical group lesson in Colorado, and I think it's all over, you have, again, kids standing in a line, and the old method to traditional method of coach says and student does. And it's usually kids in a line. And even if they're not in the line, it's usually just an obsession with some kind of footwork thing or barking about their swing. Okay. 
and then shadow stroking or something right shadow yeah yep yeah. And, and bob and i did a podcast early on um i think the first one with kind of the game-based approach to that sort of group lesson and a guy out of canada named wayne elderton and you know and we we do a lot more kind of live ball hitting and uh, you know and more um talking about the things that we're discussing like time distance and spatial relationships and when to attack and when to defend and more kind of a tactic first approach to coaching you might say so so let me kind of leave that in your mind there as far as like the group lesson and what we do differently and then um so keep that in mind but then with a private lesson you know uh bob and i think that maybe that underhand flip feed from the coach really started in kind of california with all the hot shot coaches and kind of drifted eastward you know or California and Florida, and then it kind of met in the middle and everybody started doing that. And maybe there's value in that from time to time with, you know, racket speed or that type of skill. But that's the typical private lesson, right? Is the coach doing the underhand flip or the coach feeding from the tee, you know, and the kid hitting to an empty court and not seeing how their ball impacts their opponent. So let me tell you what I've tried to modify that to one, and tell me if I'm on the right track here with a private lesson is a lot of times I'll volley back and, and try to talk about the important things because at least they're hitting a live ball because I can't control where all my volleys go. I'm not that good. And then, or other times too, I'll back up. Maybe I'll do a bounce feed from more of the baseline in a private lesson, for example, where the ball actually comes from. I feel like with a bounce feed, I can actually hit more topspin and simulate an actual ball that they might see in a tournament you know, and then obviously I spend a lot of time playing out points. Right? You got to be physically able to do that, of course, and healthy. But I'll, I'll spend a lot of time playing out points with kids and talking about these other things. So I know that was a lot, but can you tell me, am I at least maybe on the right track with the group and the private lesson out here? Because I'm telling you, every lesson you see out here is is that it's a fed ball and stroke obsession. So, yeah, so I suppose I'll I'll give a kind of insight into what the way I kind of do it, and a lot of the stuff would be kind of similar to what you're saying there. So I suppose with group lessons, generally the way I'd approach it is, in a in an ideal world, like the max I'd have on each court is like three per court. At okay. Most. Um, like if you have just to decrease the waiting time and stuff like that, and like if we're working on singles, that there would only be a max of three. So that's not always possible, and you might have four. But if we want to kind of work on developing singles players, I think three is kind of the most you could have on a court to do that kind of effectively. Um, then, say, in a lesson, the way I'd usually do it is um, I'd have a general kind of principle or something that I'd be working on. During, like, say, for example, um, it might be, say, if um, we're working on moving our port or, like, say, I'd take what we call is, like, what the way I'd call it is like we create like different slices of the game. So like um, say if I was watching, um, if I had seen the players and one of the things that was um, that they were struggling with was um, moving their opponent or something like that. Um, like oh, I designed loads of different kind of condition games where like they're encouraged to move their opponent. So like, for example, um, I'd use the principle maybe like um, pull your opponent wide pull your opponent forward or drag them to the side. I'd kind of, I'd usually use it as move wide, move back, move forward. So like we're trying to get the player out of the center of the court. So like one of the, an example of a game would be like, I'd kind of create an area in the middle of the court. And if the play, if your opponent hits 
hits or wins the point while they're standing in that, they get three points. If if you win the point and they're standing outside, you get three. So like they are able, I'm not saying they can't hit it into that zone, but if they do and they lose the point, they're going to be punished. So like I'm kind of guiding their attention towards moving their opponent through practice design. And like I'd have maybe like, see i suppose this can it can depend on the level of the player so like sometimes say if i'm working with 10 year olds and they're not as and i see that they're making mistakes and there's no points happening then i might even get them using different colored balls that make it easier and slower um i know even with my say college players who'd be at a really good standard i'd use orange balls a lot if we were using stuff that like coming to the net so it's harder for their opponent to pass them to get them more comfortable at the net so and then as they get more comfortable then i might kind of use i might kind of start slowly moving towards the full ball and then they're actually more comfortable with with the full ball so like rather than me um as a coach um getting say three of them to stand in a line i feed them three or four volleys they run to the back of the line instead i have them playing points using a slower ball so they're getting more volleys in kind of game situations because that's where they ultimately have to volley then if I'm using um, in a private lesson, if I was doing one-on-one, so I suppose at the moment, like say, I, I'm I'm 26, so um, I do play a lot during the lesson, but I do understand that, like, especially if you have seven, eight lessons in a row, at five, six days a week, that's not always possible. So, like, what I'd say is, like, if we're looking at, say, practice design from a skill acquisition point of view, there's... Um, we use something called nonlinear pedagogy and there's kind of five key principles of nonlinear pedagogy. So representative learning design is one, constraints manipulation is one, um, maintain like perception action coupling is one, um, functional variability or represent or repetition without repetition is one, and then manipulate attentional focus is one. So like that's having an external focus of attention. So if I couldn't play or say if I'd, uh, if I'd injured myself today before and I had to do a lesson, I mightn't be able to make the practice tasks very representative because I can't really play. But what I would do is I'd make sure that I respect the other four principles as much as possible. So like that means if I'm feeding that it's repetition without repetition, so they're not just repeating the same shot, they would have to adapt it. The way I'm feeding is going to make them change um just as an example so like in private lessons it doesn't necessarily always have to be representative but you want to keep it as representative as possible and that might as as representative as possible might be quite low on that day so like for example if if they have a if if you know that they have a competition in two days and they, they need to play three matches in one day you might want to be fully representative as like they might be fatigued going into competition so there are like certain factors that will rep that will kind of like um dictate how representative you can be but you want to if possible you want it to be as much as possible if that makes sense yeah it makes perfect sense bob that's going to be a good way to kind of wrap this up a little bit did you have anything else with our special guest i can't thank you enough before we go i want to make sure everybody can um contact you the best way possible philip but uh bob did you have anything else 
no, I just want to thank Philip again for everything he's done to bring the, the research stuff as much as possible to the coaches. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saddened like he is that it's not so much tennis focused. I mean, I love hearing these podcasts with different people, but yeah, it's a lot of other sports and this opportunity to talk about tennis uh, with you, Philip has been, has been great. And uh, I hope we hear more of it in the future where, you know, you're, you're talking tennis instead of talking cricket. Yeah, I don't I, understand. <laughs> yeah. I'd be happy to have any other conversations or anything even away from a podcast, but I don't mind being yeah. on a year if you want to. Um, and um like for the two of you if if you would be interested like there is um i am in a like say whatsapp group with five or six other tennis coaches that kind of use it if you'd be interested in joining i could get you at it yeah i think that's great because that you know i think one of the barriers for coaches adopting this sort of thing is it's hard you know and and and, and having people to bounce ideas off of you know i think uh i think that's a great resource so yeah so anyway, if you yeah. um if you have WhatsApp and you want to send your phone numbers, I can um, I can ask for you to be added to the group. Yeah, we can work on that. The, the struggle is real, Phil. Um, Bob always says a creative coach will have the skill, elicit the technique, but man, the struggle is real. You have there has to be a buy-in. You've got to convince the parents and the players, but then they see the results. And um, I think it's helping what I'm doing up here. Most importantly, I feel like the kids are having fun and they're getting better more quickly. But from the business side of it, I mean, being different and better is definitely a good thing, huh? I mean, I'm the sole provider for a family of five. So unfortunately, I have to look at it as a business as well. My wife homeschools. I have three kids and I have no East Coast trust fund. So there's the business side of it. But most importantly, my kids and parents are getting it and they're having fun and they're getting better and and it's working. So it's absolutely working. So, man, you're on to something. You're a young man, Phil. I'm 49. Like Bob said, he's 60, so it's incredible where you are right now as a young man. So let me um, – so this is Mr. Tennis Coach um, on Twitter, and then you have a newsletter on skill acquisition. Is that an email? Is that an okay way to reach you too? What's yeah, best- I suppose um, like if the either the two ways people can reach out if they want to is either like message me on Twitter. Sometimes I don't see it straight away because it's like – if um especially like if i haven't followed you or something it goes into like other but i will see it eventually and i and i get back to everyone that i see in there so and if you want to email me um my emails uh, mr tennis coach 23 at gmail.com and again i'm happy to respond to any emails um that i see as well so um if anyone listening does want to reach out please feel free i'm kind of happy to discuss anything with anyone Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I know Bob and I did longer intros in our first podcast, but everybody knows how to reach us. We were more interested in having the conversation with you. We appreciate the conversation. We want to continue the dialogue and um, really appreciate you coming on. We're all on a journey together and it's not out of arrogance. It's out of just trying to help our students, you know, progress and learn. So, um, yeah, let's continue the conversation and uh, continue the journey. And um, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thank you. You too, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Bob.